You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. We are in our summer sermon series. We had been in the Gospel of John. I think we made it through five chapters and then we're taking it just a break to be in the Psalms and we just started that one and just making our way through. We're calling the series just Psalms, prayer songs for the church to live with the hope of salvation in a sin broken world. And today we are in Psalm four. So if you would turn to Psalm four. Also, just a quick encouragement. Um, if you're visiting with us normally in the past, we've had Spanish translation and we don't have Spanish translation this morning. And it looks like just in the life of the church, there's some transitions happening. And so we won't have that available to you, uh, which I, we're really sorry. We're, we hope that in God's grace, he still just meets you and you, you're able to pick up on uh, some of the words here. Also, if you're here and you notice there are people gone, which there have been. There's lots of people gone. There's people traveling for summer We want to rejoice with them that they are being refreshed and on vacation. We want to be a church that rejoices in that type of thing. We also want to miss them, and we want to let them know that we miss them. So I encourage you, if you notice people are gone, maybe they're on vacation, maybe they're sick, maybe they've had babies, reach out to them. Don't don't just leave church and say, oh, you know, I miss that person. Reach out to them. Let them know you miss them. Let them know that you're thinking of them. Pray for them. Ask how you can pray for them. We want to, we're a family. That's what families do, right? A family member doesn't show up to the dinner table. We know they're missing. And we want to let them know that we care about them. So do that. Do that, okay? All right, follow along with me as I read Psalm 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and your word, and we just first confess we are lowly, weak little people. Oh, Lord, some of us dragging ourselves in with struggle and heartache and difficulty. Some of us lacking sleep. Some of us feeling as if we're coming in and we're just in the midst of war and battle and struggle and difficulty. 
Some of us coming in feeling as if we're losing the battle, the waging the war against sin even. But Lord, we see your word and your word once again lifts our eyes up to see something greater. So Lord, do it. Do that. Do it in our hearts and our minds. Take our eyes and just lift us up to see you, to know what's true in the midst of trouble. And Lord, I pray that in light of that, you would give rest and peace and joy to your people. In Jesus' name, we pray and the church says, amen, amen. Historically, people believe that Psalm 3 and Psalm 4 go together, that they're connected as sort of a morning psalm, like in the morning time, a morning psalm and an evening psalm. In Psalm 3, we saw David last week, Pastor Rob says, David cries out to the Lord in the midst of great trouble. And we saw that the Lord granted David sleep and he woke up in the middle of that psalm. He woke up to live another day. So Psalm 3 seems to speak of God granting sleep in a past tense. And so historically, Christians would devotionally, as they're reading through the Psalms or worshiping through the Psalms, as they make their way through, they would treat Psalm 3 as if it was a morning psalm. They've woken up. The Lord had granted sleep. And because of the way Psalm 4 is written, it seems as if David is now coming to the end of the day that has been filled with trouble and has as he leaves the many battles of the day it's as if there was one more battle to be had the battle of the heart as he lays down to go to sleep and so psalm 4 is treated almost as 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 it's looking to sleep as an evening psalm the battle waged as we lay our heads down on our beds have you ever experienced that battle do you know that battle? I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say yes. I know the battle. You're, you're trying to go to sleep and the trouble of the day, it's as if it's another battle. You've, you've had wars and battles all throughout the day. You're thinking, I'm just going to go home. It's going to be quiet. I, I will be able to rest. And all of a sudden, the real battle begins. The battle of your heart. The battle of your thoughts. The battle of your mind. As you try to sleep. The, the odds are... That most of us, I, I debated saying, hey, let's raise our hands. I don't think I've ever done that. I debated asking, let's just raise our hands. Have you ever battled with falling asleep because of the, way, the war in your heart and mind? The odds are, I don't even need to ask us to do that. The odds are most of us have struggled with that. Most of us know that battle. Our, our, our mind is filled with the troubles experienced on that day and the troubles that await us on the following day. And so the heart and the mind are racing. They're fearful. They're anxious, maybe even angry. Have you ever experienced that? If you live long enough, you will. If you live long enough, you will experience that because we live in a world filled with trouble. We live in a world filled with trouble and it's only a matter of time when that trouble comes hunting for your heart's peace as you try to find rest at night. I was kind of thinking through this and as I was looking back on my life, I thought there have been many nights, many moments as I'm making my way to bed 
where trouble all of a sudden comes haunting them. Anxiousness, fear, at times anger. D.A. Carson, who was an author and a scholar, Pastor Rob and I had the joy of being taught by him, a, a revelation class, says this about suffering in this world, trouble. The truth of the matter is that all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. Our loved ones will die. We ourselves will be afflicted with some disease or other. Midlife often brings its own pressures, disappointments, sense of failure, decreasing physical strength, infidelity. Parents frequently go through enormous heartache in rearing their children. Isn't that true? No amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. You just fill in the gap there. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. Psalm 4, much like Psalm 3, shows us some of the same things. So you might hear some of the echoes of the same truths from last week's psalm to this week's psalm. It shows us this. Life is tragic. Trust the Lord. You want to sum it up in two? That's the best I can do right there. You know, it's a miracle to sum up a sermon in a few words for me. Life is tragic. Trust the Lord. The Lord cares for us. And we can rest in him. That is the battle of the Christian's heart. To believe these truths. To trust the Lord who has made you his. To know that he is good to you. And he cares for you. And he sovereignly reigns over your life. And so then we can find peace for our hearts in the times or days of trouble. God gives us these psalms and they are filled with real and right responses. The Psalms are filled with real and right responses, real responses to trouble. They don't hide the trouble. They don't mask the trouble. They don't try to act like there's no trouble. Well, I'm just going to believe it's not there. I've known people like that. The the Psalms don't do do this. They don't hide the wrestlings of our hearts as we deal with trouble. They are honest and real. And I so appreciate that about the word of God. But they also teach us right responses. In the midst of our real responses, they teach us how to rightly respond to trouble. That though I feel this way, though my heart is wrestling with what I'm experiencing, here is what is true. So here is how I can and need to respond to what I'm experiencing. It teaches our hearts how to respond rightly to the trouble of life. The Psalms show us real and right (coughs) responses. So let's look at the real and right responses of Psalm 4. The first thing we see in this psalm is the very real wrestlings of our heart in verses 1 through 2. The wrestlings of our hearts. We don't know exactly what trouble or trial David is experiencing in the midst of this psalm. It, It could still be tied to the trouble of Psalm 3. If you remember, Psalm 3 tells us right before it starts, it tells us what's happening. It was a psalm in the midst of when David is being hunted, essentially, and persecuted by his son, Absalom. Absalom is his son trying to take over the throne. 
It says, the word of God said he was trying to steal the hearts of the people away. He was coming up with a coup to overthrow David, his dad, his own dad. And David's on the run. People he trusted had turned against him. Hundreds, thousands of people he, he had once cheered for him and chanted for him had now turned against him in just a moment. We don't know if that's the same trouble. You know, in a sense, that there's one way I could see where that could be the case, but I think it's speculation. The word doesn't tell us that this is now the evening of one of those days. We don't know, but we do know David experienced a ton of trouble throughout his entire life. He was hunted by so many people, turned against, friends turned on him. He did sinful things and was experiencing the pain of of loss and the pain of discipline because of his sin. He experienced all sorts of trouble and heartache and difficulty. And we hear in these first two verses, the wrestlings of a heart that is experiencing great trouble yet running to the Lord. Listen to the back and forth. When you read this, I don't know how it lands on you, but when I read this, I hear this back and forth wrestlings of verses one through two. Listen to it. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in the distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Do you hear it? Do you hear the back and forth? Oh, man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? These are struggling cries and wrestlings of a real person, wrestling with the pain and hurt of what they're experiencing and yet calling out to the Lord. David, in his calling out, is pleading. He's saying, answer, Lord, act, Lord, be gracious, Lord, he's longing. How long will this be? How long will my honor be turned to shame? How long will these people do the wrong that they're doing? And he's recalling. You are the God of my righteousness. You are my you are committed to doing what is right towards me in the midst of my trouble. And when I look to the past, when I recall, you have given me relief when I was in distress. All of that's happening in these first two little verses, this back and forth wrestling and struggle. Answer, Lord, hear me when I call. How long? Oh, you've been good to me in the past. How long, Lord? We could look at that and say, wow, he's a mess. Or we could even hear a brother or sister in prayer time before service or in our home fellowship groups or or before dinner or whenever we're praying together. And you hear some of the similar things. And we could be tempted to say, wow, they're a mess. Listen to the back and forth. Listen to all that. But the Lord has kindly put real wrestlings of real people in his inspired word that would be passed down from every generation of God's people. Not so we could read it and say, wow, he's a mess. Or believe that of one another. But so instead we could say, wow, he's just like me. How? 
you think about how transcendent God is and how transcendent his word is. Yet he gives us the word that shows us real people struggling and wrestling with real problems so that we can say, wow, I'm just like that. I struggle in the same way. Haven't we found ourselves in that very same mode of prayer, pleading with God, longing for an end to the trouble, all the while trying to recall the character and past faithfulness of the Lord? The Psalms declare to our hearts by showing us these first two verses, you are not alone in your struggle. You aren't the only wrestler in the room. And what a comfort that is intended to be for us. Sometimes, my, maybe we're tempted towards this. Maybe you're tempted towards this. I'm tempted towards, I think as a pastor, you can be tempted towards this to to act like you have it all together. I've got to pray this perfect prayer that just shows I'm fully believing in the transcendence and glory of God. When the reality is, We all wrestle. We're all struggling with difficulty and trouble and trial. And there's intended comfort in that when we look to the scriptures. The scripture shows us that we we belong to a family of strugglers. There's unique comfort found in knowing that others can relate to you in your struggle. We belong to a family of wrestling hearts There are others who have either wrestled with your circumstances or previously or are currently wrestling alongside you. We've all heard the saying, misery loves company, right? And sometimes it can be confused in that way. Like, well, we're all just struggling. Misery loves company. I don't think it's that way. Instead, let's twist that a little bit. I think it's more like this. God provides company in our misery. And isn't that kind of the Lord? He provides company in our misery. Comforting friends and family who can relate to us and who know the struggle. So in the midst of your crying out and pleading and this wrestling heart prayer, they can come alongside and say, I know exactly what you're going through. Or I know exactly what you feel like, friend. I've said this quote so many times. It's not even going to be on the screen. J.C. Ryle, this, this world is filled with sorrows. And the Lord gives us a friend. And a friend halves our sorrows and doubles our joy. Oh. The Lord provides company in the midst of our misery. Fellow strugglers who can relate to me, who are with me in the midst of our trouble. And there's something else here that's so good about these first two verses. In the midst of David pleading and longing and recalling overall, what is the good that we see David doing? I think this is being, this is seeing grace in the moment of David's life. This is how we train our eyes to see God at work in the midst of someone when they're really struggling. You're looking for any little hint, any hint of leaning towards God, anything. And we're looking for it. And what do we see David do here? He finds himself in very difficult times. 
It, it could be Psalm 3, right? It could be Absalom still hunting him. It could be Saul, Saul chasing him. It, it could be that he's feeling the pain and remorse of, of sin and difficulty and struggle. Who knows? He's going through difficult times, but what is he still doing? Running to the Lord. He's running to the Lord. And that's worth celebrating. The temptation of our hearts when we are going through trouble is not to run to the Lord. Don't you feel that? Oh, man. Adam and Eve, first prime example, and we just follow suit. They struggle, they they fall into sin. And what do they do? They hide away. They run. And what does that faithful God do in the garden? He goes after them. We follow suit, though. Our tendency, our impulse, naturally, I think because of sin, because that's built within us, our impulse is not to run to the Lord. We sang it in the very first song we sang today. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our sinful tendency is to run and not to run to the Lord. We are prone to running to anything else other than the Lord. We try to find comfort and peace in the midst of trouble. So the question is, in your trouble, is your impulse to run to the Lord? Or what do you run to? What do you run to when trouble arises? I was talking to a friend one time years ago, going through incredible struggle. And I just called him and said, bro, how are you doing, brother? Let me know. I was checking on you. And he was in the line at Dairy Queen. He just said, brother, I feel ashamed. I just feel like every time there's there's this happening, this stuff is happening, I just run to the, the Dairy Queen line. I try to fill the voids of my heart with ice cream. That may sound silly, right? Like, and it is. Like we, can, he, we even kind of laughed about it. We said, brother, no. Let's run together to the Lord. But that's our tendency. What do you run to? What do you run to to try to find comfort and peace in the midst of trouble? Food, binge watching TV just to try to get away and not think about what's going on. Self-help speakers, YouTube, certain people relationships. When we run to other things other than God, to you know what we're doing? We're treating those things like God. We're treating like thing, those things as if they can satisfy and care and comfort my heart like only God can. Isn't that idolatry? We see David's impulse and we can learn from it. David, time and time again, in the midst of his trouble, runs to the Lord and casts his cares before the Lord. Verse two, verses one through two, we see the real wrestling of the heart. But then in verse three, when it hits, it's, at, it's like this turning point in the psalm. It seems to, to change the course of the rest of the psalm. In most stories, Whenever you're reading a story, like you're reading a book or you're reading a narrative, even in the rest of the scripture, when you're reading a story or a narrative, most of the time, the main truth 
is leading up to the very end. You get the bulk of that truth at the very end. It's all leading up to one point. But the Psalms are written differently. The Psalms are not narratives. The Psalms are poems. They're poetry. And so do you know where we look for that that main truth? Most of the time, maybe not every time, most of the time, we look in the middle, somewhere in the middle of the Psalm, the middle verses, to find the main truth that hinge everything else in the psalm hinges on. It's like it's all connected to that one verse in the middle and everything is tied to that. And I believe that's what we see in verse three. We find the main truth that everything else in Psalm four hangs on. And I think it's meant to give this assurance for our heart in the midst of our wrestling. That's the second point, the assurance of our hearts. Verse three, here it is. David's wrestling. He's pleading. Lord, hear me. I'm crying out to you. Be gracious to me. How long, oh Lord? I'm trying to remember your goodness. Here's what's going on. And then verse three hits. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. We love our dog. If you've ever seen our dog, our dog's name is Spurgeon. It is Spurgeon, named after the old theologian Charles Spurgeon. I call him my the- theology watchdog. But Charles Spurgeon, uh, uh, we're, we're told whenever we got him that he's a doxador. So he's this mix of a dachshund and a Labrador. So if you see him, he's funny looking. He's, which, well, I was going to crack a joke, which is much like his owner. But, but so he's, he, he's, He's shorter, he's longer, he's got this big head that's like a lab head, but this kind of Dotson body. But he's got this Labrador heart. Just a sweet guy, calm guy most of the time, gentle, has never gotten angry, growled, or nipped at the girls. Just so sweet, so kind, always calm. But there are these moments where he gets what we call the zips. You know what the zips are? If you ever had a dog, you know what the zips are. He'll get excited and he'll start running around the house uncontrollably, literally just everywhere. Sometimes some of you have been in our home when this is happening and it's incredibly embarrassing. I'll tell you, because he's just running. He's jumping over things. He's jumping over kids, catapulting off of the couches. He'll slingshot himself around the couches and come running into the living room. He's this super sweet dog, calm. But there are these moments where he seems to be wildly out of control. Wildly out of control, like nothing could stop him. I started... Every once in a while, I don't do this every time because it's hard to do it sometimes. But I started just catching him. He starts running. I said, nope, nope. Shh, shh, and I'll just grab him and I'll just hold him. And his heart's pounding. His little breath is breathing hard. And he starts to calm down. And peace enters our home once again. And our little wildly out of control dog. When I read this verse, verse 3. When it interrupts all that chaos of verses one through two, it's like listening to David grabbing a hold of his wildly out of control heart. That's what I hear. That's what I see when I read that he's grabbing a hold of his heart with truth. His heart at maybe normal moments has been calm and peaceful, but then there's these moments it just seems out of control. It's spiraling out of control. 
But in verse 3, he grabs a hold of that heart with truth. He says, but no. So all the chaos, God, where are you? What are you doing? Be gracious. But know this. Know this. That the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Do you hear the convincing of his own heart in that verse? Oh, when he when it talks about the godly here, he's not saying those who are super spiritual and religiously outstanding among us. That word for godly is rooted. And I love how the languages work like that. They can have these roots in other words that form other words. So it's rooted in what we know as hesed. It's it's those who are in covenant relationship with God. Those who have received the gift of God's offered loving kindness. So they belong to God himself. And because they belong to him, God's ear is open to them. And he hears them when they call out to him in their distress. And they're set apart. And to be set apart by the Lord is not to be called to him and left alone. It means the Lord sets his special. Hear this. He sets his special attention and affection upon you. You are his and he's faithful and good to those that are his. And he cares about those who are his. And he's so sovereign and mightily reigning over your life that he is able to work his good purposes for you and for his glory in the midst of your trouble. Oh, yes. Amen. This is the truth that packed into that. Those words you have set apart the godly for yourself, Lord. And you hear me when I call. That's what's packed into that that line. It's this truth that grabs a hold of David's wrestling heart and gives it assurance in the midst of what he's enduring. And this very same truth is intended to grab a hold of our wildly out-of-control hearts. For those who are his in this very room, the Lord has set apart you. He has set his special attention and affection upon you. You are his, and that means so much for you whenever you're enduring trials. And so a question for you, and I had to ask my own heart this this week, Do you believe this? Do you believe it? So much of the Psalms is almost as if we're grabbing hold of our own hearts and saying, believe this heart. This is what's true. Yes, you feel like you are sinking. You feel helpless. But there is a God who calls you his. And he is able and capable to do far more. Than what you can even imagine. He is able to help you in your time of need. He is able to comfort you and care for you. Do you believe it? You may have to declare it to your heart over and over again. When your heart starts racing around like a wildly out of control little dog. 
questioning God's good purposes, questioning his control over the chaos, questioning his power to transform, or maybe even questioning his power to sustain you. We must take these truths of who God is and and who we are in him and declare them to our hearts. But know this heart. We join in with David in Psalm 3, but know this You feel this way. You're experiencing this. But know this, heart. Here is what is true. We find assurance for our hearts as we declare the truth of the Lord back to our hearts. And here's what's true. And here's what I love. Coming back to, we're not alone in that, are we? Look next to you. Look next to you. Yes, I'm glad some of you literally did that just now. (laughs) Next to you, there are brothers and sisters, family in the Lord who God has kindly provided to help us in this very thing. We may need help doing this. And so God provides others to help us in this, to help us in the midst of our trouble, to speak truth to our hearts. Precious saints, This week, I wish I could tell you I'm a superhuman pastor, man of steel, never afraid, never hurting, never grows weary. And that would just be a big lie if I told you that. Even this week, there was a moment midweek, I think I ate some stuff I shouldn't have eaten. And I'm still learning. I am such a guy. There's like, ah, it's not going to be bad. You know, I'm the guy who's like, oh, we're going to do roundup. I don't need gloves. I don't need, you know, pants. Like, we're okay. And I'm just learning you can't live that way. We're weak people, physically even weak people. we got to be wise. And I'm learning even that about my own body, about eating. I think I ate some stuff I shouldn't have eaten. And you know what happened? You know what happened? Next couple of days, body just all over the place. And so in the midst of that, I'm, 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 I start getting anxious. In the midst of that, I started feeling fearful. Well, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for for? For who I am. What if I I keep dealing with this? I can't get over this thing. This health stuff. I'm discouraged. It's disheartening. Oh my, what am I? And then you just keep going and going. And I needed needed others to come alongside me and say, But know this. Know this. Know what's true in the midst of your trouble. Know what's true. And oh my, it served my soul. Do you have people in your life, in this body, that you are allowing to live life with you where they can come alongside and say, but know this. Sometimes we are around people, but we're not really letting people in. Are you letting people in where they can speak in and encourage and know you and speak that truth into your heart and life? Are you that for others? Are you leaning in to know others in that in such a way that you can seeing them in the time of trouble? You can come alongside and say, but know this brother or know this sister, know this friend. Let me tell you what's true. Encourage your heart. That leads us to. Our 
right response of our hearts. We see this wrestling of our hearts. We see truth that informs and assures our hearts and flowing out of that truth of Psalm 3, verses 4 through 8 come and show us how to respond. The right response of our hearts. Verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. The Bible shows us a healthy and good anger against sin. There are many Psalms that reveal a righteous anger against the sin brokenness of this world. It is right to hate disease and death and wrongdoing. It is right to be filled with a passion to want to see things right and made made whole as they should be. It is right to be bothered when God doesn't get the glory he deserves in this world. Jesus was righteously angry in the temple for that very reason, wasn't he? But if we're not careful, when we are in the midst of trouble and our hearts are wrestling and things aren't going the way we want them to go or we aren't being treated the way we think we should be, the temptation is to respond the exact opposite of verses 4 and 5. Often, or we can get angry, but often sinfully angry whether towards those around us or even towards God himself. And often, our sinful anger towards those around us is actually revealing of something happening in our hearts. It's revealing of a sinful, hidden anger rooted in a distrust of God and a displeasure towards God for the circumstances he has allowed for you to be in. Often our anger that goes out to others around us is revealing of something greater happening in us. A greater anger. A distrust and a displeasure with the God who sovereignly reigns over every one of your circumstances. Paul Tripp, a Christian counselor. I love Paul Tripp. We read Paul Tripp almost daily in our home. He's an author, has wrote a lot on anger, spoken a lot on these topics. He says this of this very thing. Maybe that anger is low-grade irritation where everyone around you knows you're mad. Maybe it's the silent treatment and you're inflicting the people around you with cold silence because you're angry. Maybe it's a wife who's getting supper ready, but she's making a lot of noise with pots and pans, more noise than she normally makes. She's angry. Maybe you're a parent and you're irritable with your children because you're mad. Maybe you scream more in traffic than you normally do. No matter where you express the anger, if you are angry in the middle of your circumstances and you have claimed to believe in a sovereign God, your anger is actually with God. Most of us don't look God in the face and express that anger. But in subtle ways, we announce that anger in our situations in our relationships. One of the things I was unprepared for as, a, as I counseled people in times of trouble was for how much anger with God there is in the hearts of God's people. 
and beneath the struggles of circumstances. Hear this. Beneath the struggles of circumstances was a dissatisfaction with God that was spiritually debilitating. And here is the truth. You don't typically run towards someone that you are angry with. Maybe you don't run to God in the midst of trouble because really deep down there's an anger at God. We're not running towards God and trusting in him when we're angry at him. The heart that remembers rightly who God truly is, the heart that remembers verse three may have real anger that hates the sin brokenness of their circumstances and of this world. That's called a lament. You hate the brokenness of this world. I hate disease. I hate mental illness. I hate it with a passion. I get angry when I think of how it torments precious saints that I love. I hate that someone will take someone else's life over shoes. I hate that. It should make us angry. It should fill us with a righteous anger. I hate that we have broken bodies and we can't worship as we should. I hate sickness that keeps us away from each other. I hate sin that keeps the church at odds with one another. I hate it. But if we're not careful, if we're not careful, that that anger becomes misplaced. And all of a sudden we lay down for bedtime and we become angry lawyers. And I'm not I'm not saying all lawyers are angry. Don't hear that. But we start putting God on trial on our beds. Who do you think you are to do this to me? How could you do this? How could I go through such a thing? How could you be good in this? And we put God on trial in the midst of our sinful anger. A righteous anger hates that sin. A sinful anger turns the corner and says it puts God on trial for that. Somewhere in that, God, you are wrong for this. A heart that remembers verse three, that remembers and is trusting in the Lord. When they lay down at night on their beds, when the war is waging in their hearts and minds, the right response of of their hearts is to resist the temptation to become lawyers who put God on trial. Instead of entertaining thoughts of accusations and doubt of God, they ponder, and that's the call, I think, of these verses, they ponder what's true of God and his goodness and his character and his relationship with us. They keep their hearts and they quiet their hearts before the Lord. That's what the scripture is saying. Keep your heart. Know that your heart can get wildly out of control. You have to grab it. You have to lay hold of it. You must keep it. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance is the call of scripture. It doesn't say keep your heart unless your circumstances don't change and things aren't going your way. Then just let it flow. Now keep your heart with all vigilance. 
the right response of our hearts. Verse five, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Essentially, worship the Lord as the scripture has declared. Worship him with your life and your words in the midst of your trouble. Worship him. Give your time and your energy to the Lord. Give your voice and song to the Lord. Isn't it the hardest thing to show up to church on Sundays when you're going through really hard times? But you need to do the exact opposite. You need to show up and you need to sing to the Lord and give your effort, your energy and your time to the Lord. Not because your circumstances are all as you'd hope for, but because it's what's right. It's what's good. Worship him for who he is and what you know of his character. We don't worship God because my bank account is prospering. We don't worship God... We don't worship God because things are all going right in my own eyes or I have good health. That's the prosperity gospel. And we tend to have little hints of that in our hearts without realizing it. Why is it hard to worship the Lord when times are troublesome? Because I like to worship him when things are going good. When I'm prospering. But that's not the motivation of our worship. Motivation of our worship is he's good and he's God and he deserves my song and my praise and my life and my energy. And I love him not for what I don't love him for how he makes life go for me. I love him for who he is and what he's done for me in Christ. That motivates our worship. It may be that we show up and we worship with whispers and tears and a broken heart. But it's still worship. Isn't it? We offer right sacrifice to him and we trust him. Throughout church history. The church has treated worship and singing specifically as of our worship as doing war with our hearts and with the enemy of our souls. So that call, offer right sacrifices. It's, it's, this, it's almost as if David's saying, do war with your heart and go and do what's right before the Lord. You know he deserves our worship. Do the next thing. Go and sing praise to him because he deserves it in the midst of your trouble. Church history, Jehoshaphat, Second Chronicles, verse chapter 20, going into battle. You know what he does? You would think going into battle, we're going to put our best soldiers in the front lines. Do you know what he did? He put the choir of the Lord in the front. The choir of the Lord, the singers. Get dressed. He appointed them. Get dressed. Get ready to go. And he puts them in the front lines to sing as a sign that they were entrusting the battle to the Lord. Their battle plan? Sing praise. And you know what's amazing? When you read that story, as they began to sing, the scripture says that as they began to sing and praise, and here were their words. This was their battle cry. Give thanks to the Lord. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. Does that sound like a war cry going into battle? The armies across from you are there and we're singing, give thanks to the Lord, his steadfast love endures forever. That doesn't seem like a battle cry. But right then, the word says, as they sang and praised these words, God won the battle for them. He causes them to be ambushed and they, the enemies are ransacked so that the people are victorious. God's people. This call to offer right sacrifices, this call to come and worship the Lord, to praise him as he is, is a call for war for the Christian's heart. Jesus, the night before he would give himself on the cross, the most horrific of circumstances, the most horrific of circumstances, whipped and nailed to a tree. The most incredible battle would be fought on that cross, right? To win our salvation, to purchase us and set us free. Do you know what he did the night before? He sang with his disciples. He offered right sacrifices to the Lord and trusted the Lord. William Law, a pastor and author in 1600s and 1700s, says this, Just as singing is a natural effect of joy in the heart, so we sing because we're joyful, so it has also a natural power of rendering the heart joyful. So we don't just always sing because we're joyful. We sing to our Lord. We praise Him. We worship Him. And in that, there is this power of God to render our hearts joyful. He goes on. There is nothing that so clears away for your prayers, nothing that so disperses dullness of heart, nothing that so purifies the soul from poor and little passions, nothing that so opens heaven or carries your heart so near it as these songs of praise. And you know what songs he was speaking of? The Psalms. The Psalms of Scripture are the songs he was speaking of. We worship the Lord. We offer right sacrifices to the Lord as we put our trust in the Lord in the midst of our trouble. Life is tragic. And for those who don't put their trust in the Lord, their life is filled with anxious restlessness. That's what we see in verse 6. This anxious restlessness. David says, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Who will show us good? Who will do good to us? We don't even know where to look. They, they have this no, no sense of hope in the midst of their trouble and the tragedy of this world. Just a hopeless, aimless cry out for help. But that's not true for those who trust the Lord, saints. That's not true for us and, and those who call upon the Lord. David's very next line that he prays, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. So you see this aimless crying out at the beginning of verse 6 from people who aren't trusting in the Lord. But what does the person who trusts in the Lord do? Oh, we look to the Lord. Lord, we are looking to you for our good. Look upon your people with your divine favor in your power and your presence. Shine your glory of your goodness upon us in the midst of our trouble. We are looking to you, O Lord, and we trust that you will look upon us in your goodness. That's what David is saying. And having our heart affirmed and assured that the Lord is indeed 
with us and for us and cares for us. It moves our hearts from being filled with the anxious restlessness of verse 6 to hearts filled with an assured restfulness in verses 7 through 8 to close. David says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Everyone's happy when it's harvest time, right? Everyone can have some form of temporary joy when the bank account is full, there's food, there's a plethora of good for us. When our grain and wine abound, that's essentially what it's saying. Life seems prosperous, but it's temporary. The scorching sun will eventually come out. The harvest will eventually run out. The wine will run dry. And if our joy is merely in those things, our joy will eventually run dry too. But for those who put their trust in the Lord, the Lord provides an enduring, lasting deeper joy that's greater than the temporary joys of when life is pleasant. It's a joy that's still there when the grain and wine run out. Notice the language of how David is is talking about that lasting joy and temporary joy. It's almost as if these storehouses, picture storehouses, people are saving up the grain. There's plenty of grain. There's plenty of wine. Everything is full, but they don't trust the Lord. Eventually that storehouse will go empty. So eventually their joy will crumble and crush. But for those who trust the Lord, the Lord fills up the storehouse of their heart with more joy. I love that with more joy than they have when their grain and wine abound. More joy filling the storehouse of our hearts when we trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord. We heard it in Psalm 1. They're like a tree planted deep, right? Those who are meditating upon the Lord, delighting in the word. Jeremiah 17 echoes this. Listen to this. The person, so the person who doesn't trust the Lord, he is like a shrub in the desert. And shall not see any good come. Doesn't that sound like verse 6? Who will show us some good? So those who don't trust in the Lord, they're like a shrub. There's no promise of good. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. But listen, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water. Doesn't that sound familiar? Psalm 1 that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. Does not fear when trouble comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The person who trusts the Lord doesn't have to be afraid and anxious of trouble. For David, the war of bedtime has been fought and the truth of God has prevailed upon his heart. Verse eight, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The Lord alone is our place of refuge and safety in the midst of our troublesome circumstances and wrestling out of control hearts at times, despite how we feel, 
what is true for those who are his, if we belong to him and he, he keeps us and he cares for us and he's holding on to us and so we can rest assured, rest our weary bodies and most importantly, rest our weary hearts upon him. I think the call for this, this that we, we said at the beginning, life is tragic, trust the Lord. And if we could add one more little piece in that, and find rest in him. Find rest in him, precious saints. Maybe you're here. And maybe, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've, you're like, I, I've, been, I've been coming to church, but I've never truly found rest in the Lord. And I'm tired. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of fighting. I'm trying to find peace in all sorts of things. And it just fails me every time. I think the call of the psalm is come and find rest. Come and find rest. Martin Lloyd-Jones takes us to Christ. Listen to this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, an old pastor that I love, he says this. There has been one in this world who said to us, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in me. Which means come to me. Tell me your troubles. Tell me all about your difficulty, the difficulty of prayer, the difficulty about your weak will and failure. Whatever it is that makes you restless, go to God about it. He is the one who loves you so much. He went to the cross for you. Said Jesus, come unto me and I will give you rest. Believe in the son of God who has removed every barrier between you and God and who can give you rest and peace here and now. Let's pray.